Welcome back, everyone, to the Mind Body Mentor Podcast. My name is Steven Jaggers, and I am your host. I am super excited to release today's episode. Uh, it is with my brother Eric Godzi. He runs the Myths That Make Us podcast, and it was such a pleasure mind melding with him because his mind, if you've heard anything from him, um, is just incredible. And the way that he is able to put these concepts into words, um, I just think is unmatched. So it is probably one of my favorite podcasts to date. And if you love it or if you find any value in it and want to support this podcast, it would mean so much if you just go ahead and drop us a five-star review on iTunes. Another way that you can support the podcast through our sponsors um, and get yourself some amazing high-quality superfoods. This podcast is sponsored by Organifi. Use the code MINDBODYMENTOR for 15% off at checkout. Uh, you know, I use all of their products and anything that, you know, I'm promoting on this podcast is something that I already use. Um, so yeah, not much to say on that besides you guys are going to absolutely be mind blown by this one. Enjoy. All right. We are live. What's up, my brother, Eric Godzi? It is so awesome to have you on the Mind Body Mentor podcast. I'm stoked to delve in, dude. Your brain and your mind <laughs> is, a, uh, is, a, is a beautiful thing. Every time I hear you speak, dude, I'm like, this guy just gets it. <laughs> Man, I really appreciate that. And it was great meeting you in Sedona last year and really seeing you serve your medicine in the breathwork facilitation without having really known who you were or what you do and it was just awesome to see you in your fullest healing expression the first time i saw you oh brother yeah that was a uh that was beyond words one of the one of the highlights of my career this far that's amazing so, so powerful yeah i remember um i actually met you once in austin it was a brief that's uh, right it was a brief meeting. Uh, it was actually at, I think it's uh, one of the Thai spots over there with uh, some good friends, um, Tim and Kim. Uh, they're both body workers. I remember that. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, some some amazing, amazing friends. And Thai Fresh, to- for any Austin locals, go check it out. Yeah, Thai Fresh. You might need to turn down your audio just a little bit, brother. Mic check. There we go. We're better. Cool. So, yeah, um, I would love to delve in a little bit about that meeting in fit for service and you know for my listeners who don't know what we're talking about we held a huge breathwork ceremony three in a row for 50 people a piece just full on uh somatic release trauma release um and it was you know at aubrey's ranch in sedona it was um a magnificent scale um, how would, how was your experience? Like if you could just give a brief yeah, overview. Man. So I've been a coach for fit for service for going into three years now. And the on or the running joke is at the end of every summit, which is when we do three or five day immersives, we're like, this can't get any better. This is the best thing that we've ever done. This is the most powerful thing that we've ever done. 
And then the next summit happens. And we somehow feel like, okay, this is the greatest thing that we've ever done. It can't get better than this. And Sedona was um, like that again. It was like, it was in Sedona this past year, the one that you were at, where I had this moment where I was just kind of standing out at the edge of the ranch. And, you know, behind me is the complete stillness of the desert and Bear Mountain. And then in front of me, there is breath work happening and there's 50 people just <sighs> there's some people crying there's some people screaming i hear drums i hear anahata guiding and i was just feeling like in my bones like when i was a child my biggest dream was to help heal my mom of depression and then in my adolescence i projected that out onto culture and i wanted to heal culture of depression and now as a young man i can i felt in sedona for the first time like in my bones I'm doing my Dharma and I got to feel that because I didn't have to be coaching the breath work. I got to witness it. And that was actually a super powerful experience for me. Absolutely, brother. I want to get into, you know, Dharma and the daemon. It's uh, definitely yeah. a, a concept that I'm super interested in. What was, because I know you actually received one of the sessions. Number two, yeah. Number two. What was, do you remember any of the insights or do you remember any of the stuff oh, yeah. that came up for you? Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> the big insight for me from that breathwork uh, ceremony was realizing, not intellectually, but again, in my bones, that the very specific relationship that I had with my mom has guided the type of women that my body is unconsciously attracted to. And it's essentially the unrealized artist is like the fundamental relationship that I project onto women that I fall in love with. And I was going through a tumultuous relationship around that time that I did that breath work. And I just connected fully and deeply with this type of appreciation that if you have a mother or a father wound, you will get the opportunity to alchemize it in your relationships with romantic partners in the future. And I had this mix of just feeling fully my grief from the relationship, but also my gratitude that my dance with this woman allowed me to fundamentally change a few of the dance moves that I learned to do with that type of energy as a child that um, weren't for the greatest healing of me or the other dancer. And that was the main thing that came through. Yeah, it's, uh, and we're definitely going to get into this as well, but it's so interesting how the, the, um, the imprints that we have, the, um, the wounds that we have, we are going to be striving and almost reliving and replaying uh or calling in certain instances in our life so that we can find homeostasis so we can um, overcome and alchemize that pattern because i think on a soul level um we you know all of us want to grow absolutely and that's one of like the most fascinating symptom from trauma from my research on trauma is what they call reenactment. 
and reenactment is where the organism will unconsciously put itself into the same traumatic experiences of the original trauma with the intention of finding new adaptive action. But most people see this as the most haunting or crippling symptom of um, trauma because like the cliche example is someone who was sexually abused as a kid will put themselves in risky or abusive sexual situations that can re-traumatize them. But what the organism is seeking to do is to find a new adaptive response or behavior to it. And that happens in a much less extreme example in our motherfucking relationships. Do you think that that's because like all life is striving for homeostasis or equilibrium in some sort of way? Or do you think that's more because of the, the, um, the soul craving growth or like, um, craving that connection to the daemon or, I think it's the same thing. I think the two options that you offered are two different ways to say the same thing. I think the fundamental call of life is to grow and grow when it, when it comes to trauma is new adaptive learning. Like it's what's adaptive here. And you can look out at nature and nature is the ultimate example of this. What happens when a forest is burnt down, the forest adapts. What happens when two tectonic plates smash together and create a mountain? all the living life around that adapts. And that's essentially what evolution is doing. Absolutely. Man, I wanted to wait to get into this. (laughs) We're going in right now. Okay. So let's just, let's break it. Let's back up a little bit. Let's break down like what trauma actually is, because I think that um, that word, just Mm -hmm. people hearing it turns off so many people and, um, yeah. you know, words are the carrier of meaning and we, we infuse the meaning into the word. And I think that we need to unpack these words to really find a common ground, a f- common understanding. Absolutely. It's like strip the barnacles that have been attached to this right. word. So what, what's your like yeah. favorite definition? So the etymology of trauma is it's a wound and the way it was first used is it's a wound to the physical body. And I think the wisdom of using that word in the context that we're using it now is you have an emotional body too. And trauma in the way it's normally used now is to signify a wound to the emotional body. And if your physical body is wounded and it's not treated properly, it can get infected. And if it's infected, it can trigger an immune response that can harm the entire organism. If you have an untreated emotional wound from your past, it does the same thing to your immune system. It does the same thing to your stress response. And if the longer a physical wound that's infected goes without being treated, the more the entire organism suffers. And it's the same thing for emotional trauma. What I have found in my research, and I'm, I've just begun, like the really yeah. amazing thing about trauma is... <clears throat> And this is a whole other riff, but one of my biggest, like what I see is most missing in the spiritual community's collective stories is a, um, there, there's not adequate respect for evolutionary biology and evolutionary psychology. And if you have a body, there are laws operating on you 
that were molded by our evolutionary history that a lot of spiritual people ignore and we call that spiritual bypassing it's it's essentially bypassing the programs of having a body and i think trauma is one of the most interesting gateways to merge these two stories that i see if if they could merge it would just help the spiritual community so tremendously but um the three types of trauma that has kind of emerged out of my research on this is there's PTSD, and that's kind of the classical understanding of trauma, and that's what's technically called shock trauma. And that's where the organism meets a physical event that's so powerful that it triggers the freeze response. And we can go into the details of what that means. But then there's something called complex PTSD, and complex PTSD has to do with when you were a child, if your caretakers created traumatic experiences, that wounds you in a specific way because you are wired by evolution to seek security from your caretakers. And if the caretakers are the source of trauma, it fundamentally warps your trust in people, what you think love is, what you think safety and security is. And it's actually much harder to heal that type of trauma than PTSD. Like we have basically discovered very effective ways to heal PTSD. And we can get into the details of that. Yeah, the shock trauma, but not the developmental. Right. What I would like to propose is there's a third type of trauma that I haven't seen talked about anywhere. And I think it's story trauma. And essentially story Mm. trauma is when you encounter some truth that kills your story of yourself. And then I think that that creates most often depression or psychosis. So an example of this would be if you're married to someone for 10 years and you come home and you see a letter and the letter is telling you that your partner has been cheating on you for the last four years and they just moved out and they want a divorce and they actually have started a family with somebody else. Like your animal body did not go through PTSD. This is not the results or this is not causing direct complex PTSD, but to me, it's, it's a trauma. It's a death to your story. And you have to reconceptualize your past for the last 10 years. You don't know who you are anymore. You're no longer a husband or a wife. You're a, you know, you're a divorcee. And then the future that you've been projecting for the last 10 years is dead too. And that type of trauma, I think, fundamentally is healed through grieving. And grieving is something that we are fundamentally terrible at. But those are the three types of trauma that I see operating. Mm. Wow, that's uh, the the story trauma is very interesting, especially when we get into like archetypal psychology and the and you know the um, the whole hero's journey thing. But but something that comes up for me uh, is, is, you know, you, you gave that last story about the the story trauma, but something that I honestly see with psychedelics in a way as a, as an intervention or a catalyst, like maybe you were living the past 10 years as a fundamentalist Christian or, you know, heavily in a, a, a certain fragmented mindset. And then you have this psychedelic experience or this breathwork experience, whatever it may be, and it shatters your reality 
and you are essentially it has broken your story and it probably is a little bit traumatic um but you almost you almost needed that uh that catalyst or that intervention that little bit of from you know trauma to the to the story uh, to become the catalyst that switches gears for you into the next chapter and the next life. Absolutely. The metaphor that comes to mind is um, if you broke your leg when you were seven and you've walked with a limp your entire life, if you ever want to learn how to sprint, you're going to have to re-break it. And if you re-break it under the guidance of a doctor, you will you will go through a a condensed period of pain as you heal but once it heals you can now sprint and like for me when i was seven um someone told me what heaven was and the idea of eternity fractured my leg and for 12 or 13 years i was an arduent atheist but it was because i didn't want to look at the pain of really having to confront the idea of eternity and then i went and i did ayahuasca and ayahuasca was like we're not I'm not going to show you anything else until you accept eternity. And she rebroke my leg. But now after that, I'm able to look at a part of existence without flinching, without feeling the pain that I felt as a child. And I think that that touches on that idea that psychedelics can be a temporary breaking of a of a old wound that once it heals properly, if it heals properly, and that's why I think the right container and the right guides and mentors are so important in this work. You can fucking sprint and dance in a way that you never got to before. Yeah. Yeah. You know, my main modality lately has been this holotropic style breath work. And, you know, I have a, a an extensive background as a trauma release body worker specifically. And, and um, but just through this breath work, I have the amount of release that I have seen for people in the forms of you know, yelling, screaming, crying, shaking, laughing um, has just been incredibly profound. And it's just like, I just want this modality to get out to as many people as possible. You know, we can go back to the the definition of trauma for a second because one of my like favorite definitions came from Gabor Mate, and uh, you know he says trauma is not what happens to you; it's not the thing that happens to you; it's the thing that happens inside of you based on what happens to you. Yep. So it's it's almost like that defense system that gets activated, uh, like you were talking about. Um, you know, within the uh, kind of the story trauma, the um, not the shock trauma, but the other one. But those defense systems get activated. So being able to first become aware of it, second have a space where they can bring it up almost, right? And and re not necessarily relive it, but let those feelings and let those uh, those figure out how to find homeostasis within that defense system. Right. 
So the thing that comes up um, from that example is how you heal PTSD and what causes shock trauma, which is PTSD. And the classic example, and there's some videos on YouTube that I think are some of the most important things that people who have PTSD can possibly watch for their nervous system to understand what their body wants to do, what their body knows how to do if they allowed it to do it. And the two videos are one is of a polar bear and one is of a gazelle. And you can type in trauma video polar bear and you'll be able to find it on YouTube. But <clears throat> when you're in a situation where your nervous system feels like it's about to die, there's a couple of instinctual reflexes that the body has been programmed with by evolution. And we've all heard of fight or flight. But the third one is the freeze response. And the freeze response is when the fight or flight response no longer work. And the freeze response is something specifically that prey animals have, but also can be induced into any type of animal if you give it a tranquilizer. And this is an interesting side note that we should touch on about the most common way that PTSD is put into people in our culture is through surgery. And it's not talked about, but that's a thing that we'll go into for a moment after this riff. But um, there's a video of a polar bear that's being chased by biologists in a helicopter because they need to tag it or they feel like they need to tag it for research. And they're flying behind this polar bear and it's running and they shoot it with a tranquilizer dart and it immobilizes the bear. It forces a freeze response while the flight response was happening. And uh, they record when the polar bear starts to come out of the um, immobilization from the tranquilizer, because it doesn't have the storytelling part, because it doesn't have any ego like a human has, it doesn't get in its own way. The body knows what to do. And the first thing the polar bear will do is it starts to do these huge clearing breaths, these <sighs> and on the exhale, it starts shaking and it starts tremoring. And Peter Levine, who's regarded as one of the top um, researchers on trauma ever, he breaks down this video and he speaks over the video. And he says that if you slow down the video and you actually look at the tremors that are happening, the bear is doing micro movements of running. It's, it's, it's discharging the energy that got trapped in the moment of immobilization. With a gazelle, if a gazelle is caught by a tiger, but it's not dead yet, it will freeze in the jaws of the tiger and it will appear dead. But if the tiger gets distracted or if the tiger walks away for a moment, the gazelle will jump up, sprint away, and the moment it feels safe, it starts to tremor. And, and the tremoring it's doing is the running response that it was trying to do in the moment it got seized. And so for us, like if you're a soldier and a bomb goes off to your right side, you might have a tick. Where, you, where your neck and your shoulder are going to the right side like you're flinching. And yeah. in our culture, um, our doctors will say that you have Tourette's and they'll give you pharmacology or they'll, they'll give you pharmaceuticals to try to dampen that response. But, that, yeah. but that's actually keeping you from discharging the energy. And if you get in the space where you can work with a somatic experiencing therapist or you do holotropic breath work, and you allow the body to finish the adaptive action that needed to happen in the moment that it got immobilized, the trauma response evaporates. 
Because essentially what happens is that if you get immobilized when you're trying to flee a situation, that energy doesn't get discharged. And the way that we've evolved is the discharging of the energy is the final step in that cycle that tells the body that it's now safe again. So if it doesn't get to discharge, the body will stay in a constant state of feeling like it's in the presence of a predator. And you might go months or years never truly falling into a parasympathetic response. So you're constantly stressed out. And if you're constantly stressed out, you don't sleep well. And if you don't sleep well, every biological function starts to deteriorate. And this can just grow and grow and grow. And one of the most fascinating things about trauma research is looking at what the symptomology is and seeing how the symptomology grows and transforms the longer amount of time that eclipses from the moment that the trauma happened. And that many of the symptoms that we call different disorders in our Western model of mental health, they're actually offshoots of the core traumatic wound. And if you can process the core traumatic wound, all like eight symptoms will evaporate that you were being given eight different treatments to manage those symptoms of. You know, like if you don't sleep well, if you feel like you have quote unquote ADHD, if you feel like you're depressed, not always, but often those can actually be offshoots of a chronic stress response that is the result of an unhealed or unprocessed trauma. And holotropic breathwork is one of the most powerful modalities that we have without putting a different chemical in your body that allows the animal body to tap back into that initial moment of trauma. And I think that this is what people often will call reliving the trauma, but you don't have to re-experience the content of the trauma. Uh, you need to be in a safe enough place to um, be able to discharge that energy or to exactly. relive, relive it in a somatic experiencing exactly. way where you discharge it physically. Exactly. And then it starts to affect the, the psyche as well. Yep. Mm. Beautiful breakdown, brother. Beautiful breakdown. Thank you. Another aspect that I found that was incredibly interesting when I was listening to your article was you posed the uh, the statement, trauma is, is a question. And the question unanswered is the symptom. Can you break that down just, just a quick, quick one yeah. for us? So fundamentally i believe and we were talking about this earlier that like the fundamental drive of life is to grow and when the fundamental drive to grow meets trauma there's like a kink you know it's 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 like a knot in the muscle and the pain in the mu like a pain in one of your muscles is a question what's blocking the free movement of energy here and the answer is some new adaptation and that there is a force inside of you that will never rest, that is constantly calling you to grow. And trauma is essentially asking you, what is the adaptive either story or behavior or feeling at this point of the knot? And if that question goes unanswered, you get the symptoms and the longer it goes unanswered, the more the symptoms grow in intensity because energy is trying, it's like if you're trying to walk 
and you have a, a kink in your right glute, the more you walk, the more all the compensating muscles get overstrained and the more pain and, and, and the pain might move to your low back. It might move down to your knee. It might move down to your ankle. All of those symptoms aren't the problem. The problem is because you're not activating your glute. And so the invitation is what is keeping you from activating your glute? And often it's, we're not willing to feel something or we're not willing to do a new behavior because it's scary or it's hard. We're just not plain, not able to look at it. That's one of the biggest ones is that like one of the most powerful questions you can ask yourself. And it's one of the most terrifying questions is what is the one thing that I know my soul is asking me to look at right now in my life that I'm not looking at. And the beautiful thing, and we can, and we can talk about the idea of the daemon, but there is a part of you that if you ask that question earnestly and you're willing to hear an answer, you will get an answer in seconds. It's like there's a part of you that is just waiting for you to show up to your life constantly. It's constantly just like, I cannot wait for the ego to finally submit and to surrender. And then the moment you do, it will answer. Yeah, I would like to... I would like to delve into just our own stories a little bit, but I would like to get into the daemon as well, because I I feel like this is incredibly applicable and why I am on this path of helping people heal trauma to begin with. And it sounds like uh, we we might have a very similar story, but, you know, growing up, my parents were incredibly um, addicted to, you know, methamphetamine, other hard drugs. I'm an only child. I know they were probably doing it while I was in the womb. Um, Through that, you know, they switched their life around when I was about five or six. And they, you know, started a new life, but ended up on heavy pharmaceuticals as well. And I, I know coming into this world that my soul knew that there was something wrong, that there was something that was you know, blocking them. And I wanted so badly to help my mom because I could see the anxiety and the depression and the, you know, she wasn't able to you know, go to my sports games or, you know, go to other parties with my you know, friends and, and she wasn't able to socialize. And I just, that, that made me want to figure out why people tick and just the underlying yeah. psychology of, of people. And, you know, I, uh, I, you know, I went down the regular psychology route in college in the begin in the beginning, and like, I'm, like started reading about the DSM four or five or whatever it was, yeah. and I was just like, this is just, this is insane. But it's bullshit, and that's a whole rant. But it's, it's yeah, bullshit. It's well, it's uh, symptoms categorized into uh, pharmacology, just like whatever you want to prescribe the person. But anyways, um, I know that I needed to go through those traumatic events to develop the understanding that I have at this point to be able to, well, to want to be interested in the things that I am in and to be able to bring forth my medicine because I feel like I'm finally at the point where I'm living out my soul's dharma and helping people on a large scale. Um, 
but it took that, that <laughs> hardcore, tr- that, that trauma and that, like I, I physically still, and like, I feel like I've gotten to a good place mentally story wise. I know there's still some stuff in my, you know, my, um, my meat suit that is, uh, you know, I'm still working on it. Um, but overcoming that and developing that understanding and going through that has nourished me and my soul during this lifetime. Yeah, man, I really appreciate you sharing that story with me. That gives a lot of context. And one of the stories that has been presented to me that I've had the most resistance to, because I come from a background of radical atheism, radical philosophic skepticism, reluctance, agnosticism, and now I'm in a place where if my 21-year-old self saw me now, he would be like, what the fuck happened to you, dude? You know, because of these stories that I'm willing to hold now. And one of the stories that brought me the most resistance was this idea that we chose our lives. And and it's because when I presented that idea to people that I know who aren't on the spiritual path, who have incurred trauma, they get violently rageful. Like, how dare you? How dare you say that I chose? Exactly that I chose this, I chose right. to be raped. I chose to be, right. you know, whatever it is. Right. Yeah. Uh, what's really interesting is in my research um, on trauma and then my research on the daemon, I found something that uh, blew my mind. So like the, the root of Western civilization, at least the way it's been taught to us, originated in Greece. And, you know, like the fathers of Western culture are like Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle. And Plato wrote this magnum opus called the Republica. And the Republica was essentially his crowning philosophical achievement where he was trying to articulate how to create the perfect civilization. And it's this long philosophical, like technical, um, strategy for how to create a culture. And then the very last chapter of that book, he tells a myth. And I've never heard of it until just this past year, but it's called the myth of Ur, E-R. And it's where Western culture originated the idea of a soul and a daemon. And uh, if you'll indulge me, I'd like to share the story. Please, brother. We got plenty of time. So, um, there was a warrior who died on the battlefield and he was regarded by the gods as a virtuous man. And they chose that he would be allowed to see what happens after you die. And then he would be brought back in nine days to tell people what happens. And so he dies on the battlefield and he's taken to the middle realm and the middle realm, there's four judges and there's four doors. There's two doors that lead to earth, which is the lower realm. And there's two doors that lead to the higher realm, which is heaven. And whenever a life or a soul ends in the upper realm or the lower realm, they have to come to this middle realm and they're judged. And the judgment is essentially like, does this soul need to learn new lessons or can they go play essentially? And if they have to learn new lessons, they have to go back down to earth. And if they can play for a lifetime, they get to go up to heaven. 
but there's souls that spend a certain amount of time in heaven and they come back. And because heaven is so easy, they lose their wisdom and they have to go back down to earth. And it's just this constant cycle for eternity. And so each round of souls that's judged as having to, to go back down to earth, they have to go on this voyage in the middle realm. And they go on this voyage to the kingdom of the mother of the muses or the mother of fates. And the way it's described is there's this huge rainbow tower that connects the upper realm, the middle realm, and the lower realm. And embedded in the middle of that rainbow tower is a throne. And sitting on that throne is this woman. And she's the mother of fate. And so all these souls have to take this pilgrimage to her throne. And they're essentially lined up um, in a specific order. And then they're presented a bunch of golden threads. And the golden threads are the different fates that they can choose to live out in the lower realm, in earth, to learn whatever lessons they need to learn. And the way the story is told is the first soul that gets to choose from the uh, cords of fate is one that came from heaven. But because he or it had spent a lifetime without any struggle, it didn't have, it forgot its wisdom. And so it chose the first fate that had the most pleasure in it. And the one rule that the mother of fate told them is that whatever fate you choose, you can't give it up until you live it out. And because this soul didn't take the time to look at the full unfolding of that fate, he just picked the one with the most pleasure. He found out that he was going to be, he would become a dictator and that he would eventually have to kill his children but he would know the most pleasure, like the most mouth and body pleasure and the most power and the most wealth. The very last soul that got to pick from the fates was Odysseus. And Odysseus is one of the heroes from Greek myths that had to go through the most struggle of any hero that we have a story of. And because he had gotten so much wisdom, he took a long time to look at the fates before he chose. <clears throat> And he chose the fate of a farmer that would live a very peaceful life, who would raise a full family. They would all know health, but there would be no fame. There would be no fortune. There would be no power. And he chose that life. Once you choose your fates, in order to go into the lower realm, you have to go to the river of forgetting. That's this like creek underneath the throne. And you have Indonesia. to... Exactly. Because... The way it's told in the myth is that you have too much weight. There's too much knowing that weighs you down and you can't enter into the lower realm. So you have to drink from the river of forgetfulness. But once you do, you're given a daemon. And the daemon is a guardian spirit who remembers your fate and who will travel with you, right, who will travel with you through life. And um, that's essentially the story of the myth of Ur. And Socrates was uh, dubbed the wisest man in Athens because, and this is specifically stated, he only listened to his daemon. And his daemon was this little whisper in his psyche that only told him what not to do. That was his specific relationship with his daemon. So his daemon would tell, would tell him what he shouldn't do. And he didn't listen to anyone over his daemon. And, you know, he ended up becoming one of the most recognized legends in Western culture because of the way he lived in accordance with that daemon. 
And the Greeks don't use this word, but uh, I really like the word dharma. And I believe that dharma is the felt sense of grace when the ego finally surrenders to listening to their daemon. And that's how you manifest your fate most potently in your life. Cool. So the daemon is the whisper. It is the soul. And the dharma is the felt sense of, of being on the path of your soul's mission during this lifetime. And one of, the, one of my intuitions is you can look at the DSM and you can actually reconceptualize it as these are all the ways that your daemon will haunt you if you are not in alignment with your dharma. <laughs> these are all of the, the symptoms that you will um, experience if you have not been listening to the message. And a really deep, hard idea to grasp with that I have found in my research on mental health is the only animals that show mental illness are humans and domesticated wild animals. It's essentially wild animals that are put into zoos. And there is a whole, so there's a field of um, biology that's called ethology, which is the study of animal behavior. And there's a subset of ethology that looks specifically at animal behavior of domesticated wild animals. And they have found that if you look at any, in, any highly intelligent social mammal that you put inside of a zoo, they will eventually start to show mental illness. Birds will rip out their feathers. Elephants will grind their tusks away. Whales' fins will droop. And bonobos and chimpanzees will often show signs of depression. And it happens, but none of those behaviors have ever been observed when that animal is in the environment that it evolved to be in. If you look at our culture, we are wild animals that have been taken out of the environment that we evolved to live in, and we have been put inside of boxes. It fundamentally makes us sick. And so a big part of getting into your daemon is rebelling against the sickness of this society and trying to find a new equilibrium. And that's something that I feel all of us are trying to do because fundamentally, to be born inside of a box, to live most of your life hunched over, sitting inside of a box, not doing anything truly difficult, never really facing true struggle, not knowing a real community, not connecting to transcendence, and then eating the poison that's all around us. Like, it is actually our nervous system operating properly to have these symptoms when you live inside of a fucking zoo. Yeah, brother. I, I see it on a daily basis within people's bodies. You know, the signs of repetitive stress injuries um you know you are what you repeatedly do you become what you repeatedly surround yourself with you adapt to your surroundings and we're adapting into a contracted just mentally sick society and Obviously, the, 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 the fundamental medicine for us is the rewilding, but 
you know, one of the questions that I've always had is, you know, rewilding or living, you know, in the way of our ancestors, which, you know, our physiology still responds in the same way that it did thousands of years ago. Yeah. You know, to such that the blue light or the, the, uh, the Bluetooth from these headphones or whatever it is. So how do we move forward into the future right. with having this rewilding sense of our, our psyche? How do you rewild the psyche? How do you re and, and also, you know, we're, we, I feel like the biohacking community is really just a, um, you know, we're trying to recreate a lot right. of these, uh, things that we already have for us in nature like do you do you see any answers yeah. moving forward oh yeah so there's a couple right. of things that come up uh the first thing is one of the biggest traps of our storytelling and you see it in every type of myth and every type of culture and every type of religion even in every conspiracy theory is the infantile urge to believe that eden was in the past and that if we just stop and we just go back to some point in the past that that will fix everything. I think that that's childish. And I, do, and I think that that is an archetypical longing that is archetypically true, but not actually true. And so trying to be what we were 100,000 years ago is missing the invitation of what we could create. And so there's this idea that I want to usher into the spiritual conversation is how can we take the wisdom of the past and synthesize it with the technology now to create a new future. It's not to run back to the past because yeah. that's not going to work. Like no. the wheels are churning. How can we synthesize the wisdom of the past with the amazing technology that we have right now? Like you and I are performing magic right now because of technology. Like we are able to have this conversation, like we are essentially doing telepathy. And we're doing it in such a way where hundreds or thousands of other people are going to be able to hear this conversation in the future. And so technology is not inherently bad. And one of the things that I've been riffing on lately is like technology is the newest fire. And fire, when you don't know how to use it, can fucking kill you. But fire, if you learn how to use it, gives you warmth during the winter, gives you light at night and allows you to actually break down elements and make new elements and do alchemy. So that's one thing that I just want to give a voice to is it's not about running to the past. It's about synthesizing a new future. Yeah. The thing that I'm currently working on, and this will eventually turn into a book, um, hopefully in the next two or three years, but I'm trying to imagine uh, like instead of the DSM, which is basically a catalog of all the ways that we can go wrong, I want to introduce a medicine wheel that has um, like a fundamental new orientation to instead of believing that there are things that are broken about you, you can ask yourself, how am I out of balance right now? And the four cardinal directions of this medicine wheel that I'm currently working with is like, one is your biology. One of the directions is the stories that you tell. One of the directions is community and the north is transcendence. And I think that any of those four things, 
if you brought awareness to and you optimized it, you would see a lot of what we call mental illness evaporate. Like one of the most, so, and I think you really hit it on the head that the biohacking community is really trying to figure out like, how do we get our biology right given the environment that we're in? And that's the and that's the south part on this on this medicine wheel that I'm playing with. Another one is like community. What's wild, man, is the number one predictor for early death that is that has a higher correlation with um, dying early than being an alcoholic, than being obese, than smoking a pack of cigarettes a day or living in a place with high pollution is if you feel lonely. lonely. It's if you feel lonely. And loneliness is not correlated with the amount of people around you. Loneliness is not correlated with isolation. Loneliness is correlated with whether or not you feel seen. And what they find is that if you feel that you are seen by even one person, that the effects of loneliness dramatically reduce or or evaporate completely. And fundamentally what allows people to feel seen is if you can learn how to be authentic and vulnerable. And that if people learn how to just do that, that can wildly reduce what we call mental illness. Like what's really interesting is there's been a few psychiatrists who have gotten famous and then have been exiled for how they've treated schizophrenia. There was one um, psychiatrist in the US, I forget his name, but I will have to learn all this by heart when I write this book. And there was one in the UK where what they did is they would create um, outpatient houses to put the schizophrenics in. And the people who lived in the outhouse with the schizophrenics were not professionals. They were just random people who were told to do basically two things. Always tell the truth to the schizophrenic and treat them like an equal. And what both of them found at different time periods is that the rate of um, reduction in schizophrenic symptoms in the outpatient houses were more than the people who went to the mental health institutions and were given the antipsychotic meds. And that once the schizophrenics healed, if they went back to their old environment, to their old family constellation, most of them would have schizophrenia again in six months. And so that to me is this is the canary in the coal mine about how powerful community is. Another one is transcendence. And this is one of the most interesting things that have come up in the research in the last 10 years. If you give someone mushrooms, psychedelic mushrooms, to the degree that they have a transcendent experience, is the degree to which they will not show depressive symptoms up to a year later. A study just came out that was funded by Tim Ferriss about two months ago that found that this type of intervention, I believe it was, is 40% more effective than our current interventions with pharmacology. And the thing is, is that you don't have to, to keep taking the mushrooms. You take it once or up to three times and the effects can last for a year. And so it's not chemistry that's doing this. It's the felt sense of transcendence. Because fundamentally, when you feel transcendence, you step outside of the ego that creates all these stories. And just tasting that for a moment can dramatically heal people. And then the last one is stories. 
you know, like we were talking about it earlier, but if you ever get to a place where you authentically believe, whether or not you can prove it's true, but if you authentically believe that your soul chose this life to learn the specific lessons that you had to learn through the trauma that you've incurred, people are more resilient. If they have meaning and purpose, they're more resilient to trauma. Trauma does not mean that you become traumatized. Becoming traumatized is optional. And people that have a deep felt sense of meaning or purpose in their life are more resilient to trauma, more resilient to depression, more resilient to anxiety. And so I think that there is a way forward. And um, I'm going to do a bunch of research and write a bunch of shit to try to help share it with people. Wow, brother. I can't wait to, uh, to hear what comes, what you, uh, what you birth out of that. <laughs> um, damn, there was, there was so much there, you know, community is absolutely an essential nutrient. I think that, you know, to quote Gabor Mate in, a, in, a, in another sense is, you know, what is the opposite of addiction? He says the opposite of addiction is connection. We want to feel connected. We, you know, a, a deep sense in my body to commune is the purpose of life. We need to commune with each other. We need to commune with nature, with the earth. It is that connection. And I think that that's one of the biggest pieces that psychedelics have shown on a um, neurophysiological level is that the compartmentalization of ideas and you know, all the different parts of your brain, the walls come down and you start to be able to sync up and connect all of those different aspects and those stories of self and start to draw boxes in between them yeah. and start to make sense and tie up all the loose ends within your story, within your psyche. So, dude, I, we're, we're doing it. I have, no, I have no doubt in my mind that it's, um, it, it is being done. There's another aspect that I think, especially with the, you know, the schizophrenic case that you were talking about, is that in, in my work, you know, I run a facilitator training for uh, practitioners, mostly body workers, therapists, um, people that want to learn this specific breathwork modality um, with my, um, with some other modalities that I have trained in. But the number one the number one pattern that I get them to adopt is to honor the innate intelligence. And if we could get everyone to shift their, their being to honoring the innate intelligence with inside of their cells, within, you know, what, what is the thing that's beating your heart? Is that you beating your heart? What is the thing that's digesting your food? What is the force that's that's repairing your body on a on a cellular level? You know, when I'm working with somebody, they tell me their diagnosis or whatever the symptoms that they're experiencing. I'm like, cool, you know, like um, that's good information to know, but that's not necessarily the thing. That's <laughs> it's it's never the thing that's going on because the body is incredibly intelligent. There's such a, a, a vast amount of intelligence within nature and within our body that if we like just just me sitting in your field while honoring your innate intelligence of your body, that it's doing the best job that it can, that it's 
you know, coming up with these symptoms and these messages for a reason, just having that awareness and sharing space from that awareness, I've seen healing happen just from that. I could not agree more. And that was one of the points that I wanted to touch on earlier, because when we talk about trauma and we talk about like how quote unquote fucked the environment is because of the way it's been constructed, it can feel hopeless. But the thing that comes up for me whenever I start to feel that hopelessness arise in me is this innate intelligence in our body. And the it's one of the- Destruction is necessary. Absolutely. So, and there's quite a few things here that are so beautiful. The first one is when you study trauma and you look at animals, you can see no, an, no wild animal becomes traumatized because it allows the innate intelligence of the body to do what the body must do in order to discharge that energy. It's evidence that there is an innate intelligence inside of us that knows how to heal if we give it the space to do so. And one of the most powerful metaphors to represent that innate intelligence in our body is it's the intelligence inside of an acorn that knows how to make the acorn into an oak tree. But the fundamental thing that must happen for the acorn to become an oak tree is the acorn has to fucking explode. The acorn has to crack open. And that you might not see any life above the soil for days or weeks or months, but eventually, even if you slab concrete on top of the fucking ground, that acorn will find the crack or it will make the fucking crack. And it will become an oak tree. And it feels like fundamentally our culture has this story. Once you start to feel the cracking of the acorn, that means that you're a broken machine and you need to take the chemicals that we've created to not feel that pain. And it's almost like we've created an entire industry of glue to keep the innate intelligence inside of an acorn. And we call that healing. We call that... We are robbing the population of its growth. 100%. And it's because we have this fundamental fear of discomfort. And like one of the biggest byproducts of our current story of mental health is that it really is actually a philosophy about what it means to be a being. And what it is implying is that you should not suffer, that all suffering inherently is, is, is not useful. And so it's creating this expectation that you should stay an acorn. And that's putting you into fundamental resistance and conflict with that innate intelligence inside of you that is trying to whisper to you, grow, grow, transform, explode out of the cage that you have put yourself in. And to to bring some compassion to the language is the acorn version of you was fundamentally required for you to survive at the point of development when it was useful, which was childhood. You know, like fundamentally to survive childhood, you have to adapt to the environment around you and you can't make too much noise. But when you become an adult, in order to become an adult, you've got to break that shit. And then the beautiful thing is that what does an oak tree produce? New acorns the next generation. And like we are of nature. We are not apart from nature. That energy of nature is inside of us. 
And if we can surrender to our being, we can allow ourselves to transform. And life is beautiful when you can meet suffering with that type of lens. You can see it through the lens of growth. Whew, man, we're, uh, we're getting it, brother. Thank you so much. <laughs> we could keep going on that. Uh, you know, I'd like to tie a bow on all of this. Um, what are some, do you have any like specific techniques that you like to do to connect to your daemon or to your innate intelligence? Yeah. So for me, um, I'm, uh, like the flavor of my being is, uh, particularly cerebral. And so for me, what has been my gateway, uh, began with journaling and I'm now at a point where I can do a lot more body work, but in order to even get to that place, I had to meet my mind. And for me, it started when I was like 25, probably I was introduced to this book called the artist's way by Julia Cameron. And she taught this type of journaling called expressive writing. And essentially what it is, is you journal in such a way where you write stream of consciousness, you don't edit anything, you don't worry about spelling or grammar. And the key is you will never reread it and you will never show it to anybody else. Because what I used to do when I journaled, and most people do this when they journal, is there's this subtle expectation that it's going to be read by history in a hundred years. And so it has to be profound. It has to be wise. It can't be like, fuck, my back hurts. I really, I think I forgot to get cat food yesterday. But what this type of journaling allowed me to do is it allowed me to begin to process all the fucking gunk that had accumulated in my mind for 20 years because I had never given myself a place to be honest with myself. And that once I did this for a couple of days and my commitment was to write by hand three full pages and it took like 45 minutes and it was hard. But after a couple of days, I started getting below the mud below the concrete of civilization. And I started getting to core things that I had never admitted to myself. Like, wow, I'm not in love with my partner anymore. And I've ignored it for the last year. I'm afraid of my body. And that's why I eat bad because I'm, I'm actually afraid to engage it again because of the pain that I felt in my past. Wow. The job that I have, I'm not connected to at all, but it pays well enough. And I'm really just getting drunk on the weekends to not face the fact that I'm not doing something that I love. And it was journaling that allowed me to begin to even meet my truth. And then almost as a unconscious byproduct of being honest with myself, I started to hear the whisper. I started to hear the whisper where it was like, you have to end this relationship. I started to hear the whisper. You have to learn how to meet your body. I started to hear the whisper. This is not your call. This job is not for you. And as long as you stay here, it will continue to eat you. And then I started to play with questions to ask myself through journaling. And the number one Damon question is, we kind of touched on it earlier, but it's essentially, what is the one thing that I know the whisper is asking me to do in my life right now that I'm not doing? And then you write out that answer. And it's a hard question. It's a fundamentally scary question because it means you're going to have to do something uncomfortable if you're going to meet it. And then once you write that out, you ask yourself the question, what can I do today to show my daemon that I'm facing this? And maybe that's you write out a letter trying to articulate how you're going to end the relationship. 
or maybe that's you update your resume to begin to prepare to find a new job. But those two questions have really been the anchoring question. And it's also the question I most recommend to people. Like one of the things I find as a coach, man, is I start so many coaching calls with people telling me they don't know what to do. And almost all of those coaching calls end with they knew exactly what to do before the call started. And really what they were saying is, I'm afraid to do this. Tell me that there's some other way. Because we fucking know. We know at our core. We just want someone to be like, oh, you don't have to, you don't have to do that thing right now. You can pay attention to something else for a little while. And, and you know, maybe you can come back to that at another time. But we know, we know at our core being, we know what we need for healing. We know inside it is that innate intelligence and it's accessible at any point in time. We just have to work through those fucking layers of mud, those layers of programming, those layers of shit, imprints, traumas, whatever it is to find that that inner knowing within our, our being in our psychosomatic space yep. vessel. It fundamentally comes down to, are you willing to be still and quiet long enough to hear the whisper? There's a great story that I heard just recently, and it was a shaman talking to a Westerner. And the shaman was telling the Westerner, your entire civilization is three days deep. And the Westerner was like, what does that mean? And the shaman said, I can take any one of you, any of you sick, any of you claiming that you're broken, and I can bring you out into nature. And after three days of no food and no water and no contact with other people, your civilization dies. All the things that you think you need, all the things that you think worry you, they're gone in three days. And what's left is you can hear what the land is asking you to do. And that's where it starts. For those of you that are listening to this, it sounds like we all have some homework to do. Uh, my man Godzi, dude thank you so much for this conversation and i can't wait to drop in with you again and i I look forward to anything and everything you continue to birth continue to bring forth you know that which uh if you bring forth that which is within you that which within you will be your savior savior if you don't bring forth that which is within you that which is within you will be your destruction. The gospel of Thomas. Yep. Amen. Yeah. I first, I heard that through Peter Levine, but through the, the Gnostic gospels. Yep. Well, brother, is there anything else that you want the, the people to know, um, to look for, to come connect with you? Yeah. Yeah. If you're interested in uh, my article on trauma, you can check out my podcast, The Myths That Make Us, and it's called What is Trauma? Um, I have a weekly newsletter that you can get on if you go to my website, ericgotzi.com, and I have a journaling course there that you can check out. And the main social media I'm on is Instagram, and it's just my name, Eric Gotzi. Yeah, that piece was a, an absolute masterpiece. Is there anything else that you are really currently... That are that you are currently like really interested in studying? Absolutely, dude. There's so many things, but the current thing that I'm working on is I'm working with a friend on making a digital journal that is specifically designed to embody everything that I teach in the journaling course, 
but it's called the Dharma Journal, and it's to help people connect to their dharma through giving them a daily journaling practice that helps them listen to their daemon. And I'm really excited about that. It's been a fucking labor of love. I've been working on it for like two months, almost every day for two or three hours. And I've finally seen the light at the end of the tunnel. It's one of those things that was supposed to be done before the New Year's, and then it was supposed to be done at the end of January. And now we're just like, fuck it. There's no deadline. Just we'll have it done when it's done. And then once I'm done with that, um, I'm really going to start diving into this book, like doing the research on this book and slowly writing articles over the main things that I find, start reading these books. And uh, that will probably be the main thing that I'm going to look at for the next like two years, dude. Amazing, brother. Well, thank you so much, dude. I can't wait to drop in with you again. Thank you for the work that you do, brother. And I'm looking forward to it. Thank you for this space today. Yeah, I'll be out in Austin soon and we'll connect. Absolutely, brother. All right, take care, bro.